0: We're going to talk about Legos today, because as a parent of four kids after Christmas, I've got Legos on the brain, I've got Legos embedded in my feet, I've got Legos all over my house, it's everywhere. How many of you like Legos, worked with Legos? Yes, Legos, Legos everywhere. I can't believe how expensive they've gotten. They're a good gift for a relative to buy for your kids, so that's what we did. But my three oldest kids, uh, Lindsay's 12 and Ethan is 10 and Gibson's 6, they all got Lego sets. And I would say maybe three hours of Christmas was them just all in their rooms doing their Legos. It was awesome. So we had a very Lego Christmas. But I do want to talk about Legos today. I'm I'm not trying to sell them. I want to talk about life kind of like Legos. Because I think often life is, is like we're just bombarded with all these pieces, these moments of our day-to-day lives, these events, these happy occasions, these sad occasions, these tragedies, this news from around the world, and it's just constantly bombarding us like, like somebody's just dumping Legos upon Lego upon Lego, and we're going, what do I do with all of this? If you've ever put together a Lego set, you know, when you, when you open up the manual, if you just sort of flip through, it's a bit overwhelming, especially if it's something as big as this castle. I mean, that's really intricate. And you work and you work and you try to follow along and you try to put it all together and, and you're on step three and you do stuff something on step three that when you get to step 3000, you realize you used the wrong piece in step three and you need it now you're going, I don't have it now, so I've got to take apart all of that stuff to get that piece and put it in the right place. I think sometimes life can be like that. We're just overwhelmed by these things that are coming at us. And my goal this morning is to hopefully provide some scriptural, biblical perspective going into the new year. I want to give you some, some perspective to help you face 2016. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to walk through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and talk about the big picture of Scripture. Because I know, because I'm in it too, life can be overwhelming. The day-to-day things, just the normal stuff can be overwhelming, let alone the things that come along that we're not prepared for. But it's interesting, when, when you open up a Lego set, if you've never done this, it's not just a pile of pieces. It's not like it's just all thrown into the box and there's a picture on the front. It's not like a puzzle where you just have to you know, deal with it and find all the pieces. They separate it into bags, and each bag is numbered. Here's bag number one, and this is the first group of Legos you're going to deal with, and you have instructions just for bag number one. Here's bag number two. And so these big, complex things are broken down into major components. So we're going to walk through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And as I've said before, if you really don't have a Bible at all, feel free to steal ours. It's our gift to you. But we're going to walk through quickly, hitting a couple high points, kind of these major components. I want to give you these groups of Lego pieces, if you would, ways to look at Scripture. We're going to trace three themes as we walk through kind of key areas of Scripture. And the three things we're going to look at is that the big picture of Scripture is for God's presence to be with God's people, living God's plan. God's presence to be with God's people, living God's plan. Now, that may not seem like too big of a deal to you, But this is the reason we were created. It's the reason we exist. It's the point of everything in the world. And so the more we can understand why we're here on this earth and why the earth is even here at all, the more we can walk and trust what God is doing in this world. And all that leads to worship, and it leads to a life of overflowing ministry as we walk trusting who God is and what he's doing. So we're going to trace the big picture of scripture, these, these big major components that will help us as we are bombarded with all these Lego pieces of our day-to-day life to help us know where to put them, how to put them together in a way that makes sense. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Recently here at Orchard, we finished up a study on Genesis, the first 22 chapters or so. So I'm not going to cover it too much in depth. But if you're going to talk about the big picture of Scripture, you better start at the beginning, right? In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was created by God. And then he created this garden. At the end of all the days of creation, he he creates man and he puts him in this garden. And in that garden, he meets with him. In chapter 3, we see that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And there's this theme throughout scripture of God wanting to be with his people and his people to be with him right there in his presence, unashamed, unafraid. It was his point and his plan for us. But then, of course, Genesis 3 comes into the picture. And Adam and Eve took this plan, this purpose, all these incredible gifts, everything that God had given them, and they said, God, thanks, but no thanks. We've got our own way. This is great, but we've got it from here. We're going to do our own thing. And they did what God had told them not to do. And by doing that, it wasn't just breaking a rule. It wasn't just a mistake. It was a rebellion. It was saying to the king, get off your throne. We're going to sit there. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We've got it from here. All of the rest of Scripture is the story, the big picture of God dealing with our sin and our rebellion. All of this news that we're faced with constantly of, of the world falling apart and the struggles going on in, the, in our lives is, are the effects of that sin that entered the world. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We see this early on in the book of Genesis over and over again. This is one example of just the effects of sin in the world. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And we read something like that and we say, well, so what? So They wanted to build a city. There's nothing wrong with that. There's many cities in the world. There's many cities in Scripture. God doesn't step in every single time and say, hey, no cities. That's evil. There was something going on here. And it's in that phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. God's plan was for his presence to be with his people. His plan to be lived out. But in the sinful world that we live in, it's like, it's like we took this Lego piece, this foundation upon which everything was to be built. God. His presence, His purpose, His plan. And we threw it out. So I don't need that in this kit. I, I've got something better. Look over here is the me piece. Here's the, the me that knows everything. Here's the me upon which I'm going to build everything. And we put that in the foundational place. Let's make it all about us. And we started building from there. And that's what was going on at the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, it tells us But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Verse 6, the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Here the people were building upon a faulty foundation. And God stepped in and he demolished what they were building. And he scattered it. And in verse 12 or I'm sorry chapter 12, he's going to pick up building what he intended to build. And we might look at this and we might look at things that are going on in this world and we say why does God allow that? Why does God cause that? Why does God do this? And it's really hard to answer that question because I don't know every situation. I don't I can't possibly have the mind of God and neither can you. But to understand that sometimes he is making sure we understand you can't build on that foundation. I know what's going to happen if I allow you to continue to build. It's going to be weak. It's going to fall and it's going to hurt. And maybe, just maybe, it would be better for it to fall now than later. Sometimes it's God's mercy that causes our plans to fail so that we can turn and trust him. Every building has a foundation. Our lives have a foundation. This world has a foundation, and it is to be God. His presence, His plan. So from the beginning, we see this big picture of God's presence with God's people according to His plan, but we also see something that came in and started to unravel that. Something that threatened that. And so the question is, in our own lives, throughout history, as well as in scripture, what's God going to do about it? What's the answer? And so we see in Genesis chapter 12, God takes the initiative. Look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see the shift in foundation from the Tower of Babel? At the Tower of Babel, the people were saying, look what we're going to do. This is going to be great. We'll be set. We're going to build this thing in this city. and We'll have everything we ever need. And God says, no. But then he comes to Abraham and he said, it's not that I don't want you to be great. It's not that I don't want you to have great things. He's saying, only I can do this. I am the foundation and I will build you up. I will build my plan, my purpose, my people, but it must be on my foundation. And so he comes and he takes the initiative and he reaches in and reestablishes the relationship with his people. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Right after Genesis. Many years go by. God's people have grown in number. They eventually had to go down to Egypt because of this great famine that was in the land. And there they are in Egypt and God is taking care of them. But as time goes on, the leadership in Egypt changes and they are enslaved. We know often the story of Moses and the the plagues and and God saving his people out of Egypt. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. The Lord said, he's speaking to Moses. This is the burning bush. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Throughout scripture, God sees the struggles that we're having. He sees what we're going through. Whatever you're going through right now in your life, whatever struggles are going on, God sees that. And God takes the initiative to reach into our reality, our homes, our lives, our day-to-day struggles, and he takes the initiative to save us because it's his plan, his presence for his people. And so God takes the initiative. He reaches out to the Israelites as they're lost in Egypt and they're struggling and they're enslaved and he delivers them. And it's the great salvation story of the Old Testament. God takes his people, miraculously takes them out of Egypt and he leads them through the Red Sea and into the desert. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, a dialogue begins between God and his people. And it's this idea that God says, I've saved you now. Now let's talk about what this relationship is going to look like. And in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, he says, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, before he gives the Ten Commandments, says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. I think in this day and age, we have lost the idea that the commands of God are always based on the salvation of God. The commands of God are always based on God's salvation. Salvation doesn't come from commands. Commands come from salvation. It's God saying, you are my people. I am putting my presence among you. I have saved you. Therefore, you are to be different than anybody else. You are my people. My presence is living among you. You are to live my plan and my purposes. So let's talk about what that's going to look like. And all of the law, everything from the Old Testament law, flows out of that idea of God saying to the people, I've saved you. You're different. Let me help you to understand what that looks like. The solution to our sin problem is always initiated by God. He works to restore his presence with his people so that we can live his plan. It's not us. We don't go back to God and restore that relationship. We don't fix ourselves up and bring ourselves back to God. He reaches in. He takes the initiative. Even though we go through times of wandering and struggles, God never gives up. And so the Israelites eventually, through many hardships, are brought to the promised land. And it's like this new beginning. Ah, now you've got what you've always wanted. Isn't this great? It wasn't so great. Because while God protected them, while he brought them in the land, while he promised them and and took care of them, they continually turned away and struggled. And so we go into the time of the judges, a time of ups and downs, of, of God being faithful and delivering and them going, oh, yes, we worship God. And then they walk away and they struggle and they fall into sin. And I, as hard as that area of Scripture is, I love that it's there because I meet people all the time, and I've gone through this in my own life as well, where you're totally on fire for Christ, and then you're gone for a while. And then you're on fire for Christ, and you come back, and then you're gone for a while. And I think this idea in this big picture that God included this in Scripture helps us to understand God's not done with you. He's he's still reaching out to you. He's still saying, come back. You're never so far gone from God that his initiative to save cannot reach you. And so he keeps on reaching. And we enter this time of of God's constant care for his people. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. Pretty far in the Old Testament. Past Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 4. people living in the promised land, God's people, with his presence among them, living in his temple, dwelling among them, that made all the difference to the Israelites. Or it should have. And yet they weren't faithful. And so God sent prophets to call them back, messengers from God, saying, this is what God is saying. This is what he wants for you and from you. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says to them, If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground. Do not sow among thorns circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. This is an important part if we're going to look at the big picture of Scripture. That God's people need to hold on to God as he is holding on to them. I said earlier in the service that idolatry was a major issue, and here God is confronting it head on. Idolatry is shifting worship away from God to anything else. Anything. It doesn't matter how bad, good it is. It is worshiping something that is rightfully belongs to the place of God. And giving that thing authority in your life, giving that thing honor in your life, above and beyond God. That's what idolatry is. It's allowing that foundation to be shifted out from underneath us and putting something else in its place. And God comes to his people and he says, you've got to stop. You've got to stop or bad things are going to happen. You've got to stop or I'm going to do what I have to do to bring you back to me and it's going to be hard. But I will do it because I love you. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11 starting in verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, there is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both, both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Now listen what's going on here, because it's easy to read something like that and say, wow, that's so ancient and they're burning incense and really I don't struggle with that so much. They had taken God off his throne and put themselves there. They said, we've got this. Basically, what they were saying is, I know if I do A, B, C, and D, my life is going to go well. Now, for them, A, B, C, and D was, I'm going to worship this God by doing this, and I'm going to worship this goddess by doing this. And if I do all these things and keep my ducks in a row, then my life will go well. All right, Our A, B, C, and D may be different. For us, it might be uh, the size of a bank account, the the title on our door in our office. It might be a political party or something, whatever it is. If I can just do this, 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 and this, I'm going to be okay. Oh, yeah, and I love God too. Do you see the difference there? And God steps in and he says, look, you're holding on to all these things and I've told you time and time again, they are not good enough. They will not sustain you. They are not me. And basically what he's telling the Israelites is, I'm going to put you through a time and you're going to cry out to these things to save you and you're going to see that they won't. And I'm going to do that because I love you. And in that moment of desperation, when everything you've held on to is falling apart, maybe then, if that's what it takes, maybe then you'll turn back to me. And so that's what he does. And in the Old Testament, these people that God has lovingly called out from Egypt, shaped and formed and established in the land and put his presence among them, he allows them to be conquered. He allows foreign armies, horrible people to come in and attack them, to enslave them, and trap them, carry off them and their possessions and their children and their wives off into exile. It's a horrible, dark time in scripture but it's because they were holding on to things that were not God. They had let other things take his place. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. It's not all doom and gloom. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, God makes another covenant. A covenant is a promise. It's a a legal obligation on the part of the one making it. It's like a contract. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least among them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Here's God's plan. He says, I'm not going to put some rules on a wall and say live up to them. He says, I'm going to take what I want you to do and I'm going to put it in your heart and allow you to want that. I'm going to put myself on the throne of your heart, take you off of it. I'm going to take your sins and I'm going to save you from them and wash them away. And again, I'm going to take the initiative and do this because you can't. And the Old Testament ends with some hope. The people are back in the land, but they're still struggling. A ragtag group of Israelites. Certainly less than this grand picture of God's presence among his people living his plan. And then into that ragtag group, in Matthew chapter one, verse twenty three, a child is born. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. us. That phrase right there is one of the most important phrases of all of Scripture. God with us. As they were lost in the rebellion and the hopelessness of their sins, God said, I'm not going to leave you there. He didn't just yell at them and say, get over here, do what you're supposed to do. He said, no, I'm going to come to where you are. In the messiness of your life and your world, I'm going to come there. God with us to save, as the name Jesus says, because he will save his people from their sins in Matthew 1.21. And so God offered a solution. Jesus Christ, our Savior, to come and be with us. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room shortly before he's arrested and crucified. And he's saying some things I'm not sure they quite understood. But they should have linked it back to what we read in Jeremiah. In Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14, Jesus says this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, And he took the bread, giving thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do you see it there? The promised salvation. God saying, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. There it is. Jesus says, this new covenant, it's going to come through me. It's going to come through my blood poured out for you. And so Jesus went to the cross and he did exactly that. And our sins were put upon him and he died in our place. Jesus, God's presence with us to fulfill God's plan so that we could be God's people. Turn back to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the grave. But the story doesn't stop there. In Matthew chapter 28, he goes to his disciples now before he ascends back to heaven and he gives them his, their marching orders. Matthew 28, verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see it there? Jesus saying, I'm the foundation. I have all authority. Skip down to verse 20. At the very end, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says, I have all the authority. Everything in God's plan, I have the authority to carry it out. And then he tells his people, and I'm with you. And then in the middle of that, he gives us our orders. Verse 19, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you see it there? God's presence with God's people living out God's plan. It's the same plan from the beginning. It's the same major components. There's one more aspect. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Because it may be tempting at this point to say, well, that's a great ancient story. It's a great ancient story about what God did back in the garden and what he did in the Old Testament. It's a great ancient story even about what God did in Jesus and with the apostles. But it's more than just an ancient story. You see, in Ephesians chapter three, Paul's writing to a church, Christians, people like you and I, struggling with our day-to-day lives just like we are today. And look what he says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 4 uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, "For this reason, and he's just talked about everything that God has done and his plan to bring people to Christ He says, "For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name." I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see the presence of God there? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, the presence of God. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see how that applies to us? All generations? Forever and ever? God's power and God's glory, God's presence currently at work in us here today? This isn't just an ancient story. It's a story that is continued on today. It's the big picture of God's plan in our lives. And then finally, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Because in Revelation, we're given a glimpse ahead. And that which was started in the Garden of Eden, of God being with his people perfectly forever, They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the story that you and I are living in. So as we turn and we think about us, We think about our lives and the craziness of of all these things bombarding us. We need to ask ourselves, do we have God as our foundation? Are we trusting in Him, His plan, His purpose? Are we trying to do it ourselves? Then we need to know the big picture of Scripture. We need to dig into this together. To say, God, show me what your plan is. Show me more about your purpose. Show me who you are and what you've done for me through Jesus Christ. Because the picture of who God is and what he's doing gets bigger and bigger the more we study it. Not smaller. It's a huge grand plan of what God can do in your life. And then we need to live out that picture. We need to say, it's not just a Sunday school thing. It's not just a Sunday morning, oh yes, I believe in this. It's, I'm living that story God's presence with God's people to live out God's purposes. I'm going to live that in my life. I've got to tell you, there's two things I hope for us as a church in 2016. I hope we can continue to grow deeper in our relationship with God. I'm always amazed at the number of people in Bible study, the number of people in small groups. I want to see that continue. I hope that we can maybe establish a midweek Uh, like Wednesday nights where not only do we have a men's group and a women's group like we have now, but many different options and something for the kids that we can all grow and grow deeper in our understanding of who God is and what he's doing. The other thing I hope is that in 2016, this will be the year of evangelism for Orchard. God has done amazing things here. He has brought together such devoted people, people that have come from many different backgrounds, people that have come with hurting hearts, from difficult situations, and brought us here together, I believe, for healing. And it's been wonderful. But I fear as we continue that we may get ingrown. I fear that we may just huddle around each other and say, oh, let's let's help each other out. And we need to do that, but we also need to say we're on a mission. We need to witness for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do some things to help us to do that. How are we going to reach our neighbors and our families and our communities? How are we going to do that? So I'm excited to emphasize that as we walk through 2016. And What about you? What are you going to do to know more about God's story for your life? How are you going to go deeper in that relationship with him to know more about this big picture and how it's working out? What pieces has he given you recently that you're looking at and saying, I don't know how to do this. Take those to him in prayer and say, God, you do. I don't know what this is. I don't know what this event or this life change is, but you do. Use this for your big picture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so great. And God, you have a plan from beginning to end. The Bible's not a collection of random stories, and we are not a collection of random stories. We are a collection of your story. And so as we know your story from Scripture May we then trust and have faith to live that out in our lives. May we understand Jesus as the culmination of that story upon which it all turns and it all hinges, the very foundation of our faith, that your presence through Jesus Christ, your Son, could be with us, could save us from our sins so that we could be in your presence and have your presence with us. And so that you could live out your plan and work out your plan in our lives. And God, this world desperately needs to see people living that because they need Jesus Christ. They need to understand there really is a purpose. There really is a plan and it is wonderful. It's the thing for which we were created. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.